Good morning. It's good to be with you again here in uh, Phoenix. And um, we're from California, but don't hold that against us, right? Um, but it is good to see you all again, to uh, uh, be back here. Um, for our Sunday School Hour, um, we're going to think about the subject of the doctrine of God. Um, we may think that's something that is familiar to many of us, um, but in a day and age where uh, perhaps people have increasingly begun to think lightly, and as David Wells says, inconsequentially of God, uh, it is always an opportune time to uh, think again of who our God is and what He has done. And so in our congregation, uh, we had a whole series in our Sunday school on this recently. Um, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I did promise I would finish by 9.45. I will uh, seek as best uh, to do that. I'm looking for a clock in here. It's, it's over there. Wow, yeah, it's a little distance away. So if I, um, if I go close, I'll look at Nick and he'll kind of wave at me or, or something uh, like that, or I'll keep my watch somewhere close. Um, so what I hope to do this morning is really just give a taste or an appetizer um, so that you might uh, be um, energized, uh, a cause to, to think again more about this topic, uh, maybe uh, uh, go and read some more again about this. Maybe you've done that in the past. Um, it's always good to do it again, as we found, uh, as we think about who God is. Uh, we introduce our subject this morning by turning, of course, to God's Word. Where do we find out who God is? Of course, only in that which He has revealed, both in creation uh, and in His uh, Word. So let's turn to Psalm 145, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3. Psalm 145, uh, this psalm's entitled, Song of Praise of David. And here the psalmist writes, I will extol you my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Amen. And so far, God's Word. Well, as we think about the doctrine of God, we sometimes call it theology proper, and you'll come across that term if you uh, read any uh, significant uh, books on this subject. What is theology proper? What is the doctrine of God? Well, it's that sub-discipline of what we call systematic theology, as we read all of Scripture and bring together that which God has said about Himself about ourselves, about what He's done in the great works of creation, providence, and in redemption. Uh, well, theology proper is that sub-discipline of systematic theology which deals specifically with the divine essence and the divine attributes and the works of God. So it deals specifically with who God is, what God is, and what God has done. So that's what we're going to think about by way of uh, topic this morning. Um, going back and thinking about how the church through history has thought about this, uh, back to uh, the um, uh, 12th, 13th century medieval church, Thomas Aquinas said this, quote, theology is taught by God, teaches of God, and leads to God. 
end quote. That's a great way of succinctly putting it, isn't it? Taught by God, teaches of God, and leads to God. Uh, more recent times, a great Dutch theologian, Herban Bavink, wrote this, at the very outset, dogmatics, those things which we speak and confess in terms of what is concerning God, dogmatics, is confronted with God the incomprehensible. And so that's something we must keep, must keep before our minds as we think about this. We are confronted with someone who is incomprehensible. So then, what are we to think of here as we come to the study of the doctrine of God? Well, as we are confronted with God the incomprehensible, we are to recognize who we are before this God. We are God's creatures. He has made us. And therefore, when we come to study Him, we must do so with a profound sense of reverence. Um, we don't come to kind of take a look at who God is and to hang out with Him for a little while, as it were. We come before the holy God of heaven, the one who is beyond us in every way. We must have a profound sense of reverence as we think about this subject. And so we do not come to study God as you would come to study Him as a scientist in a laboratory. We do not put God on the bench, as it were, and put Him under our microscope and uh, see what we would like to conclude about our investigation. He is not a specimen before us this morning. He is the God who has revealed Himself to us. And therefore, we must maintain this sense of reverence, awe, humility, submission, and even amazement as we even just begin to have a glimpse of the glory of God. But then also, we must be willing to accept Him as He is and accept what He says about Himself, that all of those things are true. And we live in a day when that is less and less acceptable to people. Um, they want to make God in their image. They want God to be, uh, perhaps as I often say to my congregation, the cosmic butler. We want Him there when we want to pull the bell, as it were, when we want something from Him, when perhaps we feel at the end of our resources and tether and we think He might have something to help. Uh, we're willing to accept Him then, but we're not willing to accept that He is as He has revealed Himself, that we are who we are in His sight, both as creatures and then as fallen creatures. As we study the doctrine of God, we must be willing to accept Him as He is, and what He says about Himself is true. Well, if you're following along with the um, handout, I should have mentioned there is a handout. Uh, most of these uh, slides here are there for you to see. We, we start with some key questions and answers. First question we ask, is God like us in His being? Now, before you answer, I'm not really asking for an input at this point, but um, the answer is no. Just in case you thought, mm, I'm not sure. 
The answer is no. God is not like us in His being. He is other than us. That's the best way to say it. He is other than us. Second key question, is God's knowledge like ours? Well, you're going to get the theme here. Answer, no. God's knowledge of Himself and all things is different to our knowledge of God and things. And that's deliberately phrased that way. God knows Himself and all things in a way that we never will. We know some things of God as He has revealed Himself to us, and something of all other things, but not in that exhaustive way. And we need to be very clear about that. Thirdly then, and then this kind of comes as the question from those first two questions, how then can we understand God when He speaks to us? If He's totally other than us, if His knowledge of Himself and all things is different from our knowledge of Him and things, how then can we have any legitimate understanding, true understanding, when He speaks to us? Well, because God does indeed reveal Himself, but He accommodates, and that's the key word we'll think about a little later, He accommodates His revelation to our capacity. Um, one of my professors in seminary used to put it like this, if God were to reveal Himself to you as He is, and His knowledge as He has it of Himself in all things, then you are toast. You are toast. Of course, he was thinking very much of that experience that Moses had. Moses said to God, show me your glory. And the Lord said, no, because you cannot bear that. You cannot bear that. But what I will do is I will reveal myself accommodated to your capacity. And that wasn't an issue of him being a fallen sinner, a fallen creature. It was to do with the fact of being a creature. It was the same for Adam as it was for Moses. Same for Adam in the garden. He could not bear the um, unmediated revelation of God as he is of himself. And so if we had to understand anything of God as he speaks to us, if we are to survive that revelation, then God must accommodate that to our limitation, to our capacity, to who and what we are as creatures. So then we come to uh, three key concepts when we think about the doctrine of God in Reformed theology. Uh, number one, uh, what we call the creator-creature distinction. I began to speak of that uh, in the previous uh, uh, few comments. But now we get to put this together and to uh, state it in a, in a concrete and specific way. The creator-creature distinction. Um, I've tried to put this as a picture for you. Um, this is not mine. I must give credit to this. Uh, some of you may know of the great uh, Professor Cornelius Van Til, Westminster, Philadelphia. Um, it is said of Van Til that he never taught any class when he didn't draw this um, diagram on the board. He drew these two circles always, God and man. And the point of it, he always drew the circle of God bigger than man, first of all, and then he had it so that there was never any intersection or overlap of these circles. That God is always God, and creatures are always creatures, and the two never intersect. 
And so um, in spite of other religions, uh, other belief systems where you have some divinity in man and all of those kinds of uh, errors, um, Reformed theology, biblical Christianity uh, maintains this statement about God. God is God and creatures are creatures. Secondly, we get to a little bit of technical language here. Don't be put off by that. Um, I've used these terms because, again, if you want to read, you will come across them, uh, and so it's good to, to know them so that at least you have some familiarity and not perhaps having to run to your um, uh, theological dictionary straight away. So second uh, um, uh, main uh, term here is what we call an archetypal ectypal distinction. So the first is to do with that being. God is other than us, two separate circles. The second is to do with the knowledge of God, the knowledge that God has of himself and all things and the knowledge that we have of the revealed things. And we call that the archetypal ectypal distinction. Let me just give you a couple of quick definitions here. Archetypal theology is that knowledge or that understanding which the triune God has always had of himself and of every other fact or possibility. So that's how we say God has knowledge of himself and all things. All things that have come to pass according to his divine decree and all other possibilities, as we uh, might phrase it. God has always had perfect, complete, exhaustive knowledge of himself and these things. By contrast, ectypal theology is God's self-revelation to man accommodated to our human limitation. Uh, if you read Calvin on this, he's great. He talks about human finitude. I think that's a great word he uses, human finitude. Um, this is true knowledge, true knowledge of God, true knowledge of all other things that he reveals to us, but it is accommodated to us. It's suitable to us. It's not that exhaustive uh, revelation that God has of himself that would obliterate us. And that's the distinction in terms of um, the knowledge, the understanding that we have, not only of God, but of all of the things. Where do we find this? You might say, well, wait a minute. Isn't this just some kind of fancy theology of uh, seminary classrooms? Uh, do we actually find this in the Bible? And the answer is yes, we do. Uh, first of all, let's turn to a very famous text, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So there you have the creator-creature distinction, there you have the archetypal, ectypal uh, theologies. Secret things. There are some things that God knows that you do not. Maybe you have never thought about that, uh, but now that you have, and then you need to know God knows more than you do. God knows more than I do, and He always will. And so we need, in, you know, often our pride and often our uh, inflated opinion of ourselves um, perhaps as we say in our modern day, we need to get over that. We just need to get over that. God will always know and will always be more than we are and we know. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, again a very famous text. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, says God. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Again, Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. You transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. And then one last illustrative uh, text, Psalm 40, verse 5. Psalm 40, verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. And there you have the weaving of all the things uh, together. Uh, none can compare with you. There's the creator-creature distinction. Um, but the revealed things of God, I will proclaim the psalmist and tell of them, and yet they are more than can be told. Archetypal, ectypal theology. Well, then the third uh, great um, principle here of uh, Reformed theology we want to think about is this doctrine of accommodation, the doctrine of accommodation. Uh, Calvin here uh, has this great uh, saying. Um, if you're not familiar with Calvin's Institutes, let me uh, encourage you to read them. They're very readable. People kind of get put off a little bit, think they're daunting. Um, uh, you just need to read them a page at a time. That's what I've said to people. How do you read a big theological book? One page at a time. So, Calvin's Institutes, book one, uh, chapter 13, section one, says this. For who even of slight intelligence? Uh, Calvin didn't mince his words. You know, he, he didn't really feel it was necessary to be diplomatic like we do in our age and be politically correct and all of that. Uh, he says, for who even of slight intelligence does not understand that, as nurses commonly do with infants, God is wont in a measure to lisp in speaking to us. Thus, such forms of speaking do not so much express clearly what God is like as accommodate the knowledge of him to our slight capacity. To do this, he must descend far beneath his loftiness, end quote. And so um, often you will hear people when they cite this say, uh, I think a good way of putting it, Calvin says, God talks as in baby talk to us, as you would talk to an infant. Um, you don't come and use all of the uh, full capacity, do you, of your language, the grammar, and all of those things with, with such an infant. You speak very simply, very uh, in, in uh, simple words, and he's using that to say, even as a, a nurse does to an infant, God lisps, baby talk, baby babble sometimes, it's rendered. Um, and God does this because he must descend, come down, if ever uh, his knowledge is to be accommodated to our capacity. Again, just to give you some examples of this, uh, Genesis chapter 6 and verses 5 through 6, uh, sometimes, and in our modern days, become sadly uh, a bit of a controversial text, 
But uh, here we read, this is, of course, with regard to uh, the flood and the great flood judgment. Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Um, two things here in accommodated language. Does, does God have a physical heart? No, he does not. God does not have a body like men, as we say in our catechism. Therefore, can he be grieved in that heart? Can he undergo emotional change? Can he go from some state of being happy then to being unhappy? Answer, no, he does not. He exists in the perfection of his being, unchanging. I, the Lord, do not change, Malachi 3. And that uh, equally applies here with, uh, to um, this, this text. So what does it mean here? Well, of course, this is accommodated language to express the gravity of what had happened when the Lord saw, again, he doesn't have an eye to see. It's a picture. It's accommodated language of his knowledge. Uh, when the Lord uh, knew that the, um, the state of the heart of man was wicked uh, in almost everything, it says. Um, there were left eight who the Lord would save at this time. Uh, the heart of man was wicked in every way. Um, and to express that, then here the Lord is described in the way as if he were a man. How would a man be if he were experiencing that? If he had made these creatures and their heart, their inclination, their actions, their words, their thoughts were constantly wicked, well, indeed, it would grieve him, wouldn't it, to his very heart. And so here it's not to express how God is in his essence, but to express the gravity of the situation using that accommodation. Similar uh, uh, example, book of Hosea. We're going to turn to Hosea later in our morning service. Uh, in the text that just follows the passage we're going to think about, Hosea chapter 6 of verse 4, again, when God is dealing with his people here who have turned away from him, who have turned to the false gods, to the Baals of the Canaanites, God says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Same question. Is this saying of God that he's like us when we face such a situation? Is God wringing his hands here in desperation, not knowing what to do? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So why does God reveal himself in this way? Again, it's to express the gravity of the situation. If a man were to be faced with this, this is exactly often what we end up doing, don't we? When we're faced with something that overwhelms us, it's beyond us, particularly with regard to another individual, you may have had this experience where you've said perhaps to a child, to a sibling, uh, to a friend, to an employee, to a co-worker, whatever, what am I going to do with you? I don't know how to fix this. I don't know how to deal with this. Um, well, again, it, this is spoken here in accommodated language of God. He is not like this. God is not at his wit's end, as we often are, but it's to express the gravity of the situation of Israel at this time. Well, one other term I want to uh, introduce um, is then putting all of this together, 
then the church down through the ages has uh, used this term to describe all of this in, in somewhat summary, and that's what we call classical Christian theism. Theism is the doctrine of God. So what is the classical Christian doctrine of God? Well, this term refers then to an entire system of theology proper, the doctrine of God, which springs forth from reflection on what God has revealed as to who he is. Um, and so the biblical and historical model of Christian theism is committed to upholding what we confess in our Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, so chapter 2, paragraph 1, God is infinite in being and perfection, uh, for example, and then you can read the rest of the paragraph uh, that, that goes on to expand on that, and indeed what we read from Psalm 145, verse 3. That's classical Christian theism. Uh, James Dolzal, in his great book, All That Is In God, puts it like this uh, when he thinks about Christian theism. He says, quote, the underlying and inviolable conviction, that is of classical theism, what is that? Is that God does not derive any aspect of his being from outside himself and is, in, and is not in any way caused to be. That's why, in many ways, God is other than us. He's not dependent on anything or anybody. Uh, he's not caused to be in any way from uh, any of those things, even himself. He is of himself, is often how we put that. That is classical Christian theism. And anything today or in any other age that has um, challenged that, questioned that, is not classical Christian theism. No matter what anybody may tell you, this is what the church has always confessed down through the ages from the revelation of the scriptures of who God is. Well, I just want to do a couple of more things, and then uh, we won't necessarily get through all the slides I've given you. I've given you the, the others perhaps just for um, you to read and think about uh, perhaps uh, later, again, to stimulate uh, interest and thought. Um, let me just go through this next couple of slides of why the study of theology proper is important, and then maybe we can pause for some uh, questions and discussion. So why is the study of theology proper important? Um, I could find no better way in answering this than quoting Richard Muller. Uh, Muller was um, professor at Calvin Theological Seminary for many years. Uh, he's now retired, but he's still professor emeritus there. And he's a scholar in residence at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So um, this man has pedigree. Uh, that's why I'm citing him here. What does he say? He says, quote, the statement that theology is at a crossroads could be applied to almost any moment in Christian thought. So he's saying to say that is nothing new. That's true at any uh, age of the church. He goes on, to make that point as a general characterization of the present moment is therefore not to say anything new or revolutionary. Okay, we agree with that, I think. What matters in each historical moment is the road taken and the road not taken. He then goes on to say, in the present moment, so now he comes to today, Evangelical and Reformed theology has before it several different roads, one of which is the extension of those theological approaches that have served Christianity well during its many centuries. And he might have put in there in brackets, 
classical Christian theism, those things which the church has confessed down through the ages, those things in our creeds, those things in our confessions, those things in our catechisms. While others propose to take Christian doctrine down a series of specious alternative routes that purport to recast various doctrines in ways that seem more appealing to a largely rootless community of postmodern seekers after meaning. There's a lot of words by Muller there. But he's basically saying this has faced the church in every day and every generation, and so it faces us. There are multiple roads you can go down when you think about the doctrine of God. Are we going to continue to confess who God is with the church from his word, as the church has done down through the centuries? Or are we going to say you know, that doesn't really work for us today. We need something different. It might have worked in the past, but, you know, now we are, sometimes it's called postmodern, sometimes it's used other terms, but we are different. We need something different. But Muller says there that's specious alternative routes, um, purporting to recast various doctrines in ways that may seem appealing. You may get a better hearing for that, but in the end, it's not going to lead to a good end. And so Muller concludes here, traditional understandings of God, both of the divine essence and attributes and of the Trinity, have been caricatured for the sake of replacing them with notions of a changing temporal deity whose oneness is merely social, end quote. Uh, if you want to find that, that's actually in Dolezal's book. Uh, Richard Muller wrote the foreword to that. And that's where you'll find that if you want to find, look that up again. Uh, let me commend to you Dolezal's book. It, again, it takes some reading. It's only a little paperback, um, but he, he writes pretty densely. So again, page at a time. You'll get through it, but page at a time. Uh, it's, it's very much worth reading. Um, but he's warning the church, uh, and Dolezal takes a lot of time to, to, to warn the church that there are these things being presented in our day and generation to challenge who God is in his essence, um, what he is in what we call his attributes, and even in terms of the doctrine of the Trinity and uh, what it means for God to be one and three. Um, we might say, really? Would anybody really challenge that? And the answer is yes. They have done in the past, and they are doing so again. And so that's why the study of the doctrine of God, theology proper, who God is, uh, what God has done is important. All right, let me uh, pause there, um, take any comments, questions. Where are we at here? We're 25-2, so. Um, well, perhaps I've kind of blasted that out of the fire hydrant this morning at uh, quite a pace. Um, does that make sense to people? Um, or, uh, PJ, go ahead, brother. Uh, yes, thank you uh, for this teaching. I, I was just reflecting on how God, um, uh, praise God that he does not reveal, as you said, his mm. full understanding, knowledge, and glory to us. I'm so grateful for uh, the blissful ignorance that God allows me to have, that uh, not reaching for the things that aren't mine to reach mm. for. And yet, it's interesting how, at the same time, I've, I've heard it taught um, at churches, unfortunately. Uh, I remember hearing a sermon where, essentially, they, they went down this route, used some of these texts, 
to then criticize those who are being um, so studious of the Bible and the call was um, an attempt to get people to live out your faith, don't spend all your time just taking in theology and theology and theology. And I think there's a a way in which you can take this too far in saying, yeah, there are things not for us to know. And so not knowing, not aspiring to know more about God every day and to delve deeper is acceptable uh, because there are things clearly. And yet, if anything, like on his law, I meditate. uh, I would say, praise God. I guess the way I would sum this up is praise God for the things he would not reveal to me. Mm-hmm. And yet the things he has revealed, give me as much of it as you can yeah, get, as absolutely. I can get. And yeah. my feeble mind can yeah. understand. And so it's an interesting um, combination of, of peace that there are things I don't know. Mm-hmm. And yet the things that there are to know, yeah. I need to know. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point, brother. And, and it's, it's as always in many parts of the Christian life, it's keeping the right balance of those things. Um, so again, to, to quote my professor from seminary, you know, you do want to peek behind the curtain. And, and, and sadly, many people think that when we're going to get to glory, you know, I'll know everything that God knows. You will not, and you do not want to know that. You know, you do not want to peek behind the curtain at bare, as uh, Dulzal would call it, bare godness, you know, the divine essence, unmediated, um, because that will consume. That's what Moses could not bear, neither can any of us uh, bear. And that's why, you know, God placed him in the cleft of the rock, places his hand. That's accommodated language again, right? God does not have a physical hand, but God shielded him as he went by. Again, it's all in accommodated language because God doesn't have a front and a back, but it's to say you cannot bear the, um, the glory of God from the front. That's why Moses is in the cleft, God puts his hand over that, and then he takes the hand away, you may see the back parts of God, that which you can bear, that which is accommodated to you. Um, Of course, you may know Luther reflecting on that text, you know, was was somewhat asked, well, what did Moses see then? Um, and and, And Luther says, he saw Christ going to the cross. That's the revealed, mediated revelation of God. Um, now, you may or may not agree with Luther uh, with, with regard to that. I think that's certainly part of it, um, and, uh, and I think that's helpful. But on the other side, we do always want to say that which God has revealed, Deuteronomy 29, 29, those revealed things belong to us and to our children, God says. And so we are to know as much of that as we are able to know, and we come to that, and that's why I've given you, we may not get time to go through the slides, Um, The whole idea of methodology in the doctrine of God is one of contemplation. Um, It's not even just reading the Bible as if we say, well, you know, I've read this text and this text and this text. It is to contemplate that and with the help of of God's Spirit to meditate on that, as the the psalmist says, day and night, and say, what does this mean? Um, Let's just take the most simple um, uh, illustration of that. Um, to get to the doctrine of the Trinity, you need to contemplate the revealed things where we speak of God as Father, Son, and Spirit, and each one fully God. Um, uh, you don't go to a single text of the Bible to um, simply state that in those ways. We bring all of the text of Scripture, all of the biblical data, and come to that conclusion 
Uh, and that's not a wrong thing to do. It's an appropriate thing to do. And even as we've come to that, we can then meditate on that for the rest of our lives and even for all of eternity uh, to our profit to know who God is and what he's done. So I think that's helpful, yes. Rob Roy. Oliver, to uh, kind of piggyback on, I think it's a real important point that PJ made. And I remember Dr. Dalzell referring to Psalm 139.6, which says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Mm-hmm. But the psalmist doesn't go on to say, so I won't even try. Yeah. Right? And he refers to Dale Ralph Davis, uh, quoted loosely, um, I cannot comprehend, but I do adore. Yes. Yeah. And that the theologian's mission isn't to search out all the texts and then at the end of everything that's revealed invoke mystery. But the theologian understands because of the creator-creation distinction that there is mystery to begin with yes. um, and that mystery is recognized mm-hmm. and that it's protected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very, very helpful. Um, you know, we, we must acknowledge because of creator-creature distinction, there is mystery, things that we do not know, things we will not know. And then there is mystery that is revealed. It was hidden beginning with. Luther talks about hidden and revealed things. Um, uh, and I think those are helpful categories. Um, and uh, we must uh, take up every opportunity that God gives us in the revealed things. Um, and then, of course, some of it still may lead us back uh, to, to some mystery in God. Um, and, and so it, it's a very much a, a cyclical thing. Um, perhaps the other thing that would be said, and I'm going to make sure we, we conclude with this in about five minutes, um, all theology should lead to doxology. Um, we don't study the doctrine of God just so that we can give lectures uh, or addresses or sermons or whatever it might be, Bible studies, to say, well, I know a little bit more of who God is, even in those legitimate things that he has revealed. But in the end, we study these things, we seek to know them, as we'll listen to in our sermon in the book of Hosea, to know God so that we might worship him as he has commanded, that pleases him, and fulfilling the great purpose for which we were created, that we might uh, know him and enjoy him uh, forever. And so, yes, I mean, we, we, you know, one of the things you can do if you do a whole study or a whole series, uh, a class or whatever on the doctrine of God, you can draw these things out in much greater detail. Um, but that's, that's helpful, brother. Thank you. Yeah, did we have? Yeah. Please. So uh, when you were talking about how, when you were pointing out how God talks about him having a heart and yeah. that's how he kind of relates to us so that we yeah. can understand how he yeah. might feel or things like that, and you were like, well, God doesn't have a heart, and which is like true. And I was like, well, Jesus has a heart, so like, how does that work now? But yeah. the, it, anyway, it got me thinking of like, you know, I, like some people have come up to me and been like, or have said that, well, God changed when he, when Jesus took on flesh, he yeah. changed. And I'm like, no, and I've never had a super great um, answer to it, but it got me thinking this morning, yeah. is it true to say, and so correct me, um, but is it true to say that God didn't change, but the covenant did, and instead of relating to us in a physical temple like Israel did, now Jesus, when he said, I'll tear this temple down and, and I'll raise it up in three days, and he's talking about his body, is he now saying, 
is that is that a better way of thinking about how it, it's no he didn't change at all which I, I know he didn't change yeah but more of the um, the uh, the way which he relates to us and covenants with us is not that the the means by which he you know he now has decided to tabernacle with us in flesh and blood I think you're on the right lines. I probably wouldn't quite want to say it that way. Uh, let me try and just maybe retweak that a little bit. Um, and I'm conscious I've got like one minute here. So um, this is going to be a challenge. Um, to, to put all of this together, not only do we want to do theology proper, we probably want to do a doctrine of Christ and Christology, right? But in, in summary, the way I would come at it is this. God in his godness does not change. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. First person of the Trinity, second person of the Trinity, third person of the Trinity are fully God, possessed of all that it means to be God, and that does not change. Now, we then come to the second person of the Holy Trinity, and he took to himself what we call a true human nature, as the confession says, a true body and a reasonable soul. In that sense, he has Jesus, has a heart, he has every other bit of the body that you and I have, he has the same human soul that you and I have. And in that human nature, he changes. How do we know that? Luke tells us at the beginning of the gospel, he grew, right, both in body, stature, and in favor with the people. So he developed just like everybody else did. He was born a child, right, an infant, grew into a man, and, and so forth. So I think what we want to do when we talk about, you know, those changes, we want to put those in the categories of Christology. The second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son, become incarnate. And then what you can do with that, you see, then, is you have the one person of Christ in two distinct natures. You still have a divine nature that does not change. And you have a human nature that does. So, did Jesus Christ, the God-man, suffer on the cross? Did he undergo pain there on the cross that he did not undergo in the earlier part of his ministry as he walked about preaching and teaching? Absolutely, yes, he did. But he did that in his human nature. The divine nature never changes. It was as it was before he became incarnate. It remains as is, once incarnate, and will continue forever. The two natures are joined together inseparably forever. He is forever the God-man Jesus Christ. But we must make sure we keep the distinction of the natures. And so I think when someone wants to talk um, about um, change with regard to Jesus Christ, I think we start with the doctrine of the two natures of Christ. Not to say you can bleed that back and say, therefore, God changed. Because the divine nature did not suffer on the cross. Let's be clear about that. The divine nature did not die upon the cross. The divine nature cannot die. What happened on the cross is the human nature suffered and took to itself the full penalty for the sins of God's people. Um, I may put it this way. Can I or a minute or two, uh, to put it this way, to be absolutely clear about this. Jesus Christ dies upon the cross. The body lies in the grave. 
for three days. It's dead, right? As, as we understand death for the body. The soul, human soul is with the Lord in glory, and the divine nature is as it always is and always was. Now, that's part of where we go to there is something that we cannot fully understand, right? In the fact we cannot understand the triune God, we cannot fully understand the God-man in two distinct natures, but inseparably joined together. But we have to make those distinctions clear to say, when we read of the whole uh, uh, created order being uh, kept by the word of the power of God, and particularly that's often attributed to the Son of God, so what kept this world from absolutely falling into chaos when Jesus died on the cross? The divine nature of the second person in the Son that did not change, you see. Um, and so I think that's the way to, to come at it. It takes some time. It's not an easy answer. Um, and so practically, if somebody asks that question, I think, first of all, just sensibly, I would say to them, you know, are you willing to spend some time talking about this? because there isn't a one-sentence answer to what you've asked. If they say yes, I think it's profitable, then have it. If they say no, then I'd be very circumspect about how much time you know, you're, you're going to profitably spend with that person until they're willing to, to, to do that. Um, because you need these categories in order to have that conversation, because it's not straightforward, it is not easy, but it's important to do that. Does that help? All right, let me finish with this and then we can go to our break. Um, there is, you see this on the last slide, a grammar, a way we talk about these things that is a framework. Dolzal talks it about a framework for our God talk. Um, and let me quote Charnock here as the very last thing. Charnock says this, though we cannot comprehend him, that is God as he is, we must be careful not to fancy him to be what he is not. And I think that's a great quote and a way to maybe finish this up, um, to say um, we will not fully understand who God is, the triune God in three persons, even the fullness of what it means for him to be the God-man Jesus Christ. But that does not give us license to say, well, then, you know, I can make him in a way in which I can fully understand and I can be happy with. Um, and uh, I think, you know, when we keep those two things in proper balance, then that is the God who has revealed himself to us, the God we come to worship, and even as he's fully revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, incarnate, uh, come to be like us in a true human nature for our sakes. Amen. Let's uh, pray. Father, we are brought to that point of humility humbled to the dust in having but a glimpse of who you are, even in who you have revealed yourself to be, whilst acknowledging that you are the incomprehensible one in the essence of your being. Grant, O oh Lord, that even in this short time that we've had this morning, we might know you better, and that in the knowledge of you, we might worship you aright, even as you have commanded, in spirit and in truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.